Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 136, The Battle of Heaven Field. The year was 633, or 634, and the tide was turning against Northumbria for the first time in as long as anyone can probably remember. I mean, Aethelfrith had united Northumbria, and then he had that victory at the Battle of Chester, which wasn't just a problem for the Welsh, it was also a problem for Mercia because it further established Northumbrian domination. And while Aethelfrith was later killed by Raidwald in battle, that balance of power really didn't shift. The North remained dominant. And we can see that evidenced by the fact that Edwin immediately took the throne and attacked Elmet and forced them into submission, and then went on something of a rampage, dominating his neighbors, including the Mercians and the West Saxons. Northumbria was definitely on an upswing. But now, that balance of power was swinging in the other direction. Edwin was dead. Catwathlin was marching through Northumbria with his war bands. The males of Edwin's line were dwindling fast, with only Aidfrith left alive. And really, he was only barely alive, considering that he was a prisoner of Penda. And Ainfrith, son of Aethelfrith, was dead due to an overestimation of his own importance. Really, all that was left for the North to rally around was Osric, the son of the old king of Deira. Sure, there were the other sons of Aethelfrith, Oswald and Oswiu, but they were up in the region that would eventually become Scotland. They were a long ways away. So basically, all Cabwathlin had to worry about was Osric. And once he and his warriors were dealt with, Northumbria would be entirely dominated. For the Welsh, who had struggled so long against their Germanic neighbors and watched as more and more of the islands slowly came under their control, this moment of success and the chance to seize the initiative must have been an exhilarating moment. But they weren't alone in Northumbria, and like I said, Osric was still active. However, I guess that fact does come with a silver lining. Because unlike Edwin, Osric was pagan. Or at least, upon Edwin's death, it looks like he went back to the old gods. And actually, it looks like most of Northumbria also went back to their old gods. So at least Catwathlin wasn't fighting fellow Christians anymore. So, you know, there's always that. However, that was probably the only ray of sunshine that Catwathlin and his army was dealing with at the moment. I mean, Catwathlin, who was originally at the head of a multi-kingdom alliance, was now alone in Northumbria. Penda and his men were gone. Why? Well, he was busy now, because he was king. He had ambitions of his own, places to go, and things to do. So Catwathlin could deal with this on his own. Penda was occupied. And consequently, a good portion of his army was now gone. And to make matters worse, it turned out that Osric wasn't a pushover, and neither were his troops. And perhaps Cadwathlin was a bit overconfident and pushed too far into Northumbrian territory to boot. Because before he could say, hang on, hang on, time out, I need a breather, Cadwathlin found himself having to barricade himself inside of a fortified town. And that's never a good position to find yourself in. We aren't told of the composition of Osric's forces. But I wonder if it was a combination of hardened warriors who escaped the Battle of Hatfield Chase, along with whoever they could convince to hold a spear. I say that because the tale that we're told about Hatfield Chase is pretty devastating. It sounds like the Northumbrian forces were broken in a not insubstantial way. So who would have been left? They might have been able to gather some of the uninjured warriors, 
But even if Osric could find all of the scattered and routed warriors and convince them to fight under his banner, would that be enough? So that's a bit of a headache. And I really wonder if Osric would have been able to gather enough warriors to besiege Cabwathlin without relying on less than professional conscripts. Sort of like, hey, farmer, you look strong. Grab your spear and follow me. That sort of situation. Though we probably will never know. What we do know is that Cabwathlin was wily. And rather than be starved out by these Northumbrians, he decided to see what was through door number two. And he and his warbands charged out of the town and took the forces of Osric completely by surprise. I like to imagine Osric at the head of a large warband that was half-stocked with experienced and well-trained warriors, and then the gaps were just filled in with whoever they could get their hands on. And with Capwathlin inside the walls, they were just kind of milling around. Maybe some of them were having a nap, others were having a drink probably feeling pretty good that they finally cornered this Welsh king that was causing so much trouble for them. You know, that sort of thing. And like I said, we aren't given details, but that is how I imagine the scene just before Capwathlin and his forces burst out of the town and charged Osric. And Bede does tell us that Osric and his men were completely taken by surprise by the Welsh charge. And their lack of readiness had devastating consequences for the Deiran forces, because Osric and his men were quickly cut down by the Welsh. Osric of Deira, son of Aethelric, was now dead, as was Ainfrith of Bernicia. Cabwathlin had free reign over the entire region of Northumbria. And Bede tells us that he ruled the following year. Well, ruled is probably a nice term for what Bede tells us. Rather, we're told that Cabwathlin ran around Northumbria like a furious tyrant. And you know what? I suspect he probably did. The thing is that he suffered pretty heavily under Northumbrian rulers, as had his forefathers. And let's put ourselves in his shoes for a second. I can imagine that he probably felt victimized by this Anglo-Saxon kingdom. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Oftentimes, when people feel victimized, they run the risk of excusing any sort of behavior in response. You see that time and time again throughout history, where certain people have felt victimized, and they might have actually been victimized, but then they turned around and committed atrocities in response. I mean, how many blood-soaked warlords do we see having pretty tough backgrounds? Genghis Khan, Caesar, they all have them. And you might have even seen this in your personal life, where someone felt wronged and turned into a rat bastard in response. Looking at Cabwathlin, I wonder if that's what happened here. That the desire for strike back and being downtrodden gave him a warped view of what justice might be. Because, at least by the time Bede was writing, the Northumbrians were still pretty raw about his treatment of them during his conquest. And keep in mind, he was writing over a hundred years later. So I'm guessing that Capwathlin was less than a light touch. Enough so that people were still hurting from it even a century later. In fact, Bede tells us that even by the time of his writing, that year where Capwathlin exacted his revenge upon Northumbria is talked about in terms of ill omens and hatred. That does not sound good. But regardless of whether or not he was a good ruler, he now held Northumbria and was unchallenged. Well, almost. The thing is that Aethelfrith was, well, he was kind of fertile. So he had quite a few sons, and up in Dalriada, two more of his sons were probably more than a little outraged at the death of Aethelfrith. 
and their names were Oswald and Oswiu. And they had to claim to both Bernicia and Deira, as their mother was Acha, the sister of Edwin, who was a prince and later king of Deira. So that's a bit of a problem. And the truth is that Oswald was no stranger to the battlefield. True, he had been forced into exile 17 or 18 years earlier by Raidwald and Edwin. And he was only about 12 at the time. But his years in Dalriada were not spent idly. There are even literary references to three Anglo-Saxon princes who were fighting in Ireland, and one was named Oswald. And the timelines match well enough that those three princes could have been Oswald, Ainfrith, and Oswiu. However, it's not perfect. The names don't match perfectly. And of course, this was from an Irish poem that kind of had a mythic tone to it in many ways. However, it's not impossible that Oswald and his brothers spent some time in Ireland. And at the very least, they might have been helping out whatever court they were taking sanctuary in. And moving between Dalriada and some of the northern Irish kingdoms wouldn't really have been unheard of because of the cultural ties between the two areas. But whatever the case, it seems that Oswald and his brothers were building bridges and alliances with neighboring Celtic kingdoms, and also keeping their skills pretty sharp. Again, the parallels between this story and the story of Edwin are somewhat remarkable when you think about it, what with the exile and alliance building and all that. And where Edwin had made every effort to connect religiously with his overlord, Raidwald, by staying pagan while the great Bretwald still lived, the sons of Aethelfrith were also aware of the political importance of the gods. Because while they were in Dalriada, which was a Christian Scottish kingdom, they converted to Christianity. And this probably helped provide them support from the Scots of Dalriada, and possibly also of Northern Ireland. And maybe it was this level of backing, in combination with the knowledge that this Welsh king had just killed Edwin, who was the man who was largely responsible for Aethelfrith's death, that gave Ainfrith, the would-be king, the confidence to approach Capwathlin and sue for peace. Maybe thought they'd be natural allies due to that. Or at least, maybe thought that the Scottish backing would be enough to keep him safe. But we all know how that ended. However, whatever the sons of Aethelfrith did while they were in exile, it looks like they were doing a good job of it because the alliances that Oswald and his brothers were building were strong enough that he didn't just return to Northumbria alone. He came with a small warband of loyal supporters. But there was a problem. Northumbria already had someone ruling over it, Capwathlin, and his army was substantially larger than the warband that Oswald brought with him. But if Capwathlin wanted to be unchallenged, he would need to deal with the last few claimants to the throne. But once that was done, he might be able to force the Anglo-Saxons back to the southeast. And maybe they would be able to take the island from these kingdoms that, even before the days of Baden Hill, had given them so much trouble. And so he mustered his forces and marched towards this new enemy. In the life of St. Columba, we're told that Oswald had a vision of Columba right before the battle. And here's what we're told. King Oswald, after pitching his camp, in readiness for the battle, was sleeping one day on a pillow in his tent. He saw St. Columba in a vision, beaming with angelic brightness, and a figure so majestic that his head seemed to touch the clouds. The blessed man, having announced his name to the king, stood in the midst of the camp, and covered it all with his bright garment, except at one distant point, 
And at the same time, he uttered those cheering words which the Lord spake to Jesua ben Nun before the passage of the Jordan, after Moses' death, saying, Be strong and of good courage. Behold, I shall be with thee, etc. Then St. Columba, having said these words to the king in the vision, added, March out this following night from your camp to battle. For on this occasion, the Lord has granted me that your foes shall be put to flight. And your enemy, Catlon, shall be delivered into your hands. And that after your battle, you shall return in triumph and have a happy reign. The king, awakening at these words, assembled his council and related the vision, at which they were all encouraged. And so the whole people promised that after their return from war, they would believe and be baptized. For up to that time, all that Saxon land had been wrapped in darkness of paganism and ignorance, with the exception of King Oswald and the twelve men who had been baptized with him during his exile among the Scots. End quote. Really? All of Northumbria had been pagan? Well, there were some errors in that vision then, because actually Christianity had been present in Northumbria before even the Anglo-Saxons. And even when they went back to paganism, we all know that Edwin and Paulinus brought Christianity back again, along with, of course, his queen, Ethelberg. But whatever. I also like the fact that in this vision, Oswald arrived with 12 men, just like his brother Ainfrith had done. And just like the number of people who were baptized with Edwin's daughter. And of course, that's a parallel to the number of apostles. Don't forget that when reading the source material, many of the writers were more concerned with truth than objective fact. And it looks like the truth they wanted to establish here is that Oswald had arrived by divine providence. Also, apparently, Edwin didn't count. But, you know, we'll skip over that. But if nothing else... This should give you an indication that there's some literary license being taken with this story. The other thing I find interesting is that Cadwathlin, who is called Catlin in the story, is treated as sort of a divine retribution for Northumbria for persisting in paganism. You know, the fact that a Christian king would be treated as divine retribution and then another Christian king arriving would be treated as salvation it seems like it's a bit melodramatic and contradictory, if you ask me. But anyway, we're told that Oswald returned his warband to Christianity the night before he faced off with Capwathlin. And that was good timing. And we're also told that this story came straight from a tale told to the scribe by an abbot, who heard it from Oswald. So it's a bit word of mouth. But that is the story we're told. So, Oswald and Capwathlin met at a place that would later be known as Heaven Field and was pretty close to the village of Hexham. And the battle took place at least in sight of Hadrian's Wall, and might have actually butted right up next to it, with Oswald using the old wall to enhance his defensive position as Cadwathlin and his Welsh army approached northward from York. Prior to the battle, Bede tells us that in the twilight hours, Oswald and his soldiers hastily dug a pit and erected a big wooden cross in it. They were in such a rush that Oswald himself held the cross in place while his soldiers heaped soil around it to hold it upright. And then, while I presume the Welsh army of Capwathlin was organizing, Oswald knelt before the cross and prayed that heaven would send help because they desperately needed it. And Bede tells us that he cried out so that all of his warband could hear him. Let us all kneel 
and together beseech the true and living God Almighty in his mercy to defend us from the proud and cruel enemy, for he knows we have undertaken a just war for the safety of our nation. End quote. And the soldiers did as they were instructed. And it must have been a hell of a sight, this hastily pulled together army that probably consisted of foreign supporters as well as local Northumbrians, all kneeling before a rough wooden cross as the sun crested over the horizon with the ancient Roman wall within sight. I wonder what Capwathlin thought when he looked upon this new warband that had formed to oppose him. Did he hesitate, seeing such a clear indication that these people worshipped the same god that he did? Did he see it and just not care? After all, politics is politics. And while it's nice that this shaggy war band had found Jesus, they're still trespassing. Or was he a bit of a hipster? And he saw the prayer group with their cross and thought, look at these tryhards in their attempt to join a winning god. Too late, posers. He's already backing us. I kind of hope it was the last one. But as dawn broke, the forces of Cathwathlin advanced. Now, tradition tells us that Hadrian's Wall formed the southern boundary of the battle, and that Oswald forced a defensive fight, using the wall to minimize the advantage of Cathwathlin's superior numbers and preventing them from being able to flank the smaller force of Northumbrians. Overall, it was a pretty sound strategy. And it sounds similar to how Suetonius and the Romans used the terrain to turn Boudicca's numbers against her, and prevent her vast army from encircling them. And for the most part, it looks like it played out in a similar way. We don't have many details, but from the story we're told, it looks like there was quite a fight. And given the placement of the forces, it was probably a great deal more of a pitched battle than Capwathlin had anticipated. Probably with the members of the Welsh army having to step over their fallen comrades to get into the narrow field of engagement. And in the end, after enduring the numerous horrors of battle in this cold northern kingdom and against the barbarians who lived there, the Welsh forces couldn't take any more. They had seen too much. They had lost too many friends. And they broke. And they were pursued by Oswald and his men. Some have argued that the fighting continued, with the Welsh forces rallying and trying to resist the enraged Northumbrians in several pitched battles at various points along the wall and even on it. And that does give the imagination a bit more to play with when thinking about this battle. The idea of these lightly armored and lightly armed, shaggy, bloodied warriors standing on the wall that was constructed by Hadrian, which was still there, but in disarray, as they desperately tried to hold off the forces of their enemy. But ultimately, this is one of those moments that we really just don't know much about. What we do know is that there must have been some sort of rout of the Welsh forces, because at Dennis's Berna, which translates to Dennis Brook, and it's now thought to be Rowley Burn, which is quite a few miles away from where the battle actually took place. It's there that we're told that Capwathlin, the king of Gwyneth and tyrant of Northumbria, was slain. Gwyneth, which had come so close to dominating Northumbria, had been broken. Though they didn't know it, after about 200 years of conflict, this would be the last major battle between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. And now, after 17 years in exile, Oswald, son of Aethelfrith, took his place as the king 
of Northumbria. The line of Ida had returned home. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just look for at britishpodcast. And we're on Tumblr, not to mention we have the forums. In fact, you can find all of this stuff over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And also, while you're there, click the link to our free iOS app. It's pretty neat. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>